Father in heaven, we just thank you so much again for already being present. Thank you for leading us through this week, God, and bringing us to this time, this place, this experience of worship. God, we thank you for the precious blood that cleans all of our sin. Lord, as we open up the word of God tonight, we pray that you would invigorate us, that you would inspire us, and that you would bless us according to your will. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Very good. Tonight's message is entitled, Becoming what? Legendary. That's right. Becoming legendary. You know, it's really interesting. I was actually um, listening to this podcast Last year, a lot of things took place last year. I was listening to this podcast. I got really into podcasts roughly around the months of August to November. And my friend had sent me this podcast, and it was called How to Be a Hero. And I thought to myself, I really don't want to listen to this. He urged me, you've got to listen to this podcast. So I said, okay. And this podcast is the interviewer. He is talking to a man who runs a scholarship foundation for Carnegie Hall. And Carnegie Hall actually honors a particular class of individuals for this scholarship. What kind of people are they? People who are heroes. And I thought to myself, when I, when I was listening to this, I thought, is this a joke? But then I continued to listen to it, and I got really sucked into this podcast. And uh, the interviewer is talking to this coordinator of this foundation. And he says, let me tell you about three of the most unusual stories of heroic deeds. He starts telling about the first one. An Indian lady by the name of Laura Shrake. And about 17 years ago, she was driving down this lonely Kansas road. And as she was driving through the the lonely Kansas road, she was passing by all sorts of fields and orchards. She was passing by cow pens. And as she was passing by one fenced-off area, she looked as she was driving, and she caught the glimpse of this young lady who was trapped against a tree, and a 950-pound bull was ramming her over and over again in the tree. Are you ready for this sermon? She pulls over. She races out, and she puts her hand on this electrified fence. She steps over, not realizing that she had touched this electrified fence, and she starts hitting this bull, and it is continually ramming this woman against the tree. She looks for this piece of stick. She grabs this piece of rubber, and she starts whipping this bull over and over again until it backs off. She helps the other lady get over the fence. The bull backs off, begins to charge, races towards her. She puts her hand on the electrified fence. She steps over right before the bull gets to that fenced-off area. She ends up saving the life of this woman. And when I heard that story, I thought, I've got to listen to the rest. (laughs) And then the coordinator starts talking about the second story. A guy by the name of uh, Bill Pennell. And apparently this man was driving at night. And as he was driving by night, at night, he looks off into the street 
and he notices a car crash that took place. A group of young men had crashed a car. The car began to catch on fire. People were gathered around. They could hear the young men trapped in the car screaming. No one was going near the car. And what he does, he pulls over. He gets out of his car. He starts getting close to the door. He puts his foot on the door, on the side of the car, and he opens up the door. He reaches into them to grab the men. And as he is doing it, parts of the car that have this searing, you know, piece of metal and plastic from the top of the car begin to fall on his arms. As he is pulling these young men out, he ends up saving their lives. He ended up getting these like third degree burns from reaching into this car that was on fire. And when I thought, I thought to myself, I have heard this. This is so amazing. I can't take any more of this. It was the last story. Story by the name of Walter Arpri. This was a man who was in a subway with two of his children. And they were waiting for the subway tram to show up. And as they were there, they noticed a man near the edge. And he begins to waver back and forth. And all of a sudden, the man falls into, onto the ground, onto the tracks. And people are just watching. And this man... He's looking around. No one is doing anything. No one knows what to do. They could hear the train coming very fast. He jumps down, and he begins to try to drag the man, but realizing he is too heavy, he straightens the man out. He lays right on top of him as the train begins to pass over. But what was so remarkable is that the man woke up as the train was still going over. And the words that he told this man was, did I die? And this hero said, no, you're not dead. You fainted. And he, the man, as they're just talking as this train is just passing over them. And finally, once it passes over, rescuers come and they get the man out. And I thought to myself, this is the stuff that legends are made out of. You read stories like this. You hear stories like this. You get blown away. Movies are made. Books are written about people like this. It was really interesting. I uh, got, got into mountaineering. Not that I did mountaineering. I liked reading books about mountaineering. <laughs> and wearing clothes as if I was mountaineering. Like many Seventh-day Adventist young adults. Anyhow, so I was... Checking out this book, and it was called Touching the Void. They made a movie about it. They made a documentary about it. True story. Took place over 30 years ago, and this is perhaps considered one of the most legendary feats of mountaineering. Now you're probably wondering yourself, where in the world is this sermon going? You just hold on a second. You will discover soon. And it's a story of a man by the name of Simon Yates and Bob Simpson. And they went to these Peruvian mountains to climb this place called the Suela Grande. And they got to the top. They did a, they did a hike, a, a, a specific trail that most people could not do. But the most dangerous part about this whole ascent was once they reached the top, it was now a matter of getting down. Because that is where the danger began to take place. As they were making their way down, Bob Simpson fell. He ended up crushing his knee. And now he was limping. 
And they were trying to make their way down this mountain face. And it was so interesting. They had this idea what they were going to do to ensure the safety of both climbers. They tied a hundred and foot rope to each other. That way, in case one of them slipped, the other one would be able to serve as an anchor. And so they began to make their way down. And as they began to make their way down, they got to this part, which was a precipice. And as they got down, Simon Yates began to lower Bob Simpson. And all of a sudden, a storm came in. And he began to get very tired, and he could not move anymore. And this other individual... Bob Simpson could no longer pull himself up anymore. And for about six hours, they were trapped. They could not communicate. And here, well, here he was. He was getting tired. Simon Yates was getting worn out. He could not hear his friend anymore. His friend down there could not climb anymore. And they were stuck in this moment of extreme tension. And so what? Simon Yates decides to do. He pulls out a knife, realizing he cannot save his friend, realizing his friend might have already died. In order to save himself, he pulls out a knife and cuts the rope. The tension releases. He's calling out for his friend, obviously, for one last glimmer of hope, nothing. Looks around for about an hour, but believes his friend to be dead, he begins to make his way down the mountain pass. And as he gets down, he begins to mourn the loss of his friend. The other hikers at base camp also begin to mourn the loss of this man, Bob Simpson. And in an act of symbolic, uh, you can kind of, uh, a memorial, they decide to burn his clothes. As an indicator of this man's passion was about the mountains. And he has died and everything with him has gone up. But little did they know Bob Simpson survived. He fell down this crevasse. And while he was down there, he landed on this ledge. He was now broken in other places. But he was still alive. He called out to his friend, couldn't hear. He pulled up the rope and realized his friend had cut the rope in this moment. Of, and by the way, they're not friends anymore. I'll just to let you know that. <laughs> True story. Realizing this, just this act of helplessness. And he decides that he, if he doesn't do anything, he's going to die. And so in this just risk, he decides to roll himself down another crevasse with the hope that he might find an opening to get outside the mountain. And sure enough, he rolls himself off that ledge, falls further down. And for three days and three nights, he crawls off the mountain. His hands were so frostbitten. And what makes this story so unusual is when he finally arrives at base camp, this other hiker... His partner, Simon Yates, was about to leave the next day. And that night, while he was sleeping, he woke up because he began to hear moaning. Opens up his tent door, and there he sees his friend crawling. Crawling to him. They race to him. 
Finally, medical help flies in and they get this man out. Both these men are still alive today. And it is considered one of the most legendary feats of mountaineering. And when you listen to stories like this, you read stories like this, or you read stories like this, you think to yourself, legendary moments are created in moments of trial, moments of tribulation, moments of conflict. Today, we're going to be taking a good look at one of the most legendary people in all of Scripture. The Bible tells us his name is King David. It's powerful when you study out the story of David. When the Messiah is connected to the Old Testament, the title that is given to the Messiah isn't the son of Moses. It's not the son of Abraham. It is the son of who? David. David was considered the greatest king of the Old Testament. There were legends about his feats and what this man had done because of his faith in God, his belief in God, and what he was willing to do for the battles of the Lord. From his anointing at an early age, all the way to his appointing that would come through various circumstances, we begin to understand something powerful about this legendary character by the name of David. Today, we're going to be taking a good look at what made David legendary. Everybody, take your Bible. Let's go to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is the chapter that proceeds the chapter of David slaying Goliath. David slaying Goliath is one of the greatest chapters of the Old Testament. Jews looked at that chapter to inspire them with courage and hope. The story of David and Goliath has permeated our modern culture as well and throughout the history of humanity. However, it is the chapter that comes after, which is a very surprising chapter and teaches us much about David's life, about his character, about his beliefs, his work ethic. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 18. For all those that are late, there's grace granted to you today. 1 Samuel chapter 18, let's start with verse 1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him home that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him, gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And in this symbolic act of covenantal fellowship, what Jonathan does, he takes off the garments, takes off these items that belong to the sons of kings, and he places upon this young shepherd boy these items. But it's really interesting what the Bible begins to tell us next about this man, David. So David went out wherever Saul sent him. And I want you to notice that verb, depending on your translation, I love the simplicity that is found in the New King James. And it says these words, and behaved himself over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Saul's servant. You know, when you think of the word behave, it's kind of a strange word. And the Bible seems to apply it to David. 
that when he was introduced into Saul's kingdom, he began to set himself apart by this very strange, simplistic phrase, David behaved himself. Now I have a German shepherd. His name is Hero. He's about four years old. And this German shepherd, if he doesn't know you, is going to bark at you. He is also a cat. Because he loves going through my legs. And if he purred, I would believe he really was a cat. But there's something interesting about this dog, and that is this. When he does something foolish, and he does something foolish every day, I always say to him, I said, Hero, you need to behave yourself. That word behave is a verb we generally apply to beings or children inferior to us. It's something we say to more simplistic creatures. We don't really say it to our friends. We don't really say it to our parents. We don't say it to our pastors and to our leaders. This isn't a, 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 a verb that we generally use with people who are equal or greater than us. But the Bible seems to describe the next king of Israel. There was this verb that seemed to exemplify his life. The Bible says, he behaved himself. Let's continue reading. And David went out, and wherever Saul sent him, he behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servant. The Bible here begins to describe, as David began to behave himself, he begins to immediately be promoted now. Saul begins to recognize his talents, begins to recognize his faithfulness, begins to realize that this young man has plenty of gifts and abilities that are useful in his army, so he sets him over the man of war. It's really interesting. Here in this context, we begin to see that David proved himself through his faithfulness in little things. I love what Ellen White says right here. She said something so remarkable. She says these words, so today, while the humble worker, for God is following his what? Employment. Angels of God stand by his side, listening to his words. Noting the manner in which his work is done to see if larger responsibilities may be entrusted to his hands. Not by their wealth, their education, or their position does God estimate men. He estimates them by their purity of motive and their beauty of character. Here we begin to see that this quotation begins to be exemplified in the life of David. He proves himself faithful. And as he's faithful in little things, God begins to honor him with greater responsibility. You know, when I was studying this out, I realized something. Saul was a man who did not run his kingdom in a very good way. Ellen White says in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that the very people within his kingdom were discouraged and depressed. They saw Saul's countenance, his behavior, and his spirit. This was not a fun place to be. Yet it was during this time and in this environment that David decided he was going to be faithful to God. And he begins to honor God in the little things. And I love what one author says. 
He says, when you do little things like they're big things, God begins to do big things like they're little things in your life. When you're faithful like David was, you will begin to see how God begins to entrust you with much more. But this is where it gets even more interesting. Let's fast forward a little bit. Verse 6. Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And you can just imagine that moment as Saul is listening to these songs, he begins to notice that a comparison is being made about himself. This young man, is now receiving greater praise than he is. Let's continue. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And I, know, I want you to pay attention to this next verse. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. You know what's really interesting about jealousy? It's not fun. Can you say amen to that? There's something happens when you're jealous. When you're jealous for your honor, when you're jealous about other people, when you're jealous about position, you begin to, to misconstrue how you view other people. And individuals who were once considered your friends, you now consider your enemies. You know, I had a young man call me about a couple weeks ago, and he told me he had a problem. Him and his girlfriend were having a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, Pastor Nell, my girlfriend and I have to keep having these reality checkpoints. I go, what does that mean? They said, he said, we have to keep stopping and having these conversations about our feelings. And I go, could you elaborate a little bit more? And he says this, my girlfriend, when she notices I'm around other girls, she gets very jealous and she shuts down. Ladies, you don't know what she's talking about, right? <laughs> and what happens is she shuts down and she leaves the area because she doesn't want to deal with what could possibly be. He ends up talking to her because he realizes she's checked out. She shares with him what's going on. But then he shared with me the same thing happens to him. When she is around other guys, and noticing the way that she is interacting, not doing anything inappropriate, but noticing just that she is getting attention and she's engaging people. He begins to have feelings of jealousy. And he says, I just shut down and I want to get away from that area. And he said, I can't keep doing this. What should I do? And I shared with him this story. And I said, you want to know what Saul's problem was? How he could have dealt with that jealousy? He said, how? The best way to combat jealousy is to celebrate other people. Let me repeat myself. The best way to combat jealousy is to celebrate other people. Like the Bible tells us in the New Testament, to esteem others better than yourself. When you begin to celebrate what God is doing through other people, this comparison between you and that other person begins to diminish. And rather than feeling insecure or threatened by that other person, 
you will begin to celebrate what God is doing in their lives. You know, I go to a place where a lot of people compare themselves. It is called the gym. <laughs> and when I go to the gym, I like to say my evangelism is about to begin. And when I'm at the gym, I talk to different people. There is a Christian man that I am witnessing to. He is a very strong man. And as I've been talking to this man, one day I heard some other people talking about him, but they were saying some nice things. They said, this guy, he's a Christian. He's a good man. So I told him later on, I said to him, I said, hey, boss. He said, yeah, I heard some things about you. And he said, what? <laughs> I heard some people say some good things about you. You have a good reputation here. And all of a sudden, like, his countenance changed from Cain to, like, you know, uh, Peter after his conversion. And he said, really? I said, yeah, people are saying nice things about you. You have a good reputation here, man. Keep it up. Keep following the Lord. He's blessing you. He's like, thanks, man. He said, you made my day. And I realized, man, when you begin to celebrate what God is doing in other people, this insecurity begins to dissipate. And especially among young adults, because there will always be someone greater than you. There will always be someone smarter than you, someone better looking than you, someone who's a better singer than you, someone who's a better speaker than you, someone who is better than you, period. And rather than being insecure or feeling threatened or feeling like you need to sabotage them, you've got to celebrate what God is doing in their life. Can you say amen to that? Are we in church tonight, ladies and gentlemen? We've got to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of people. And the most confident people are the ones that praise God for what he is doing in their lives. Saul had a love of praise. He loved what was said about him as the first king of Israel. But it got to him. It began to corrupt him. It began to change him. And as soon as Israel began to praise another the demon of jealousy began to roar. Let's see what the Bible says next. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10. So it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. He prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand and at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And you know where this is going. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul, notice this next part, was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence, made him a captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. Now I want you to notice this next phrase. And David, what is that next verb? Behaved wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Therefore Saul saw that he behaved very wisely. He was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Now I want you to notice something very interesting about this phrase, behave, in the second context. It doesn't just say David behaved himself. Now it is saying David behaved himself in all of his ways. Here we begin to understand something about David and his life in the kingdom. He began to grow. He began to be more faithful. And as he was faithful in more things, God began to bless him in other ways. 
And the Bible says, all of Israel and Judah, what? Loved him. And friends, that is both. That is both the cause and that is both the, excuse me, that is both the cause and the effect. Not only was Israel and Judah blessed by David's presence amongst them, they began to praise God because they realized he was fighting battles not for himself, but for them as well. You know, it's really interesting in this particular context of David behaving himself, you begin to see that the people of Israel and Judah begin to love this man, David. And Israel and Judah had lines, even though Judah was considered the central part of that area, after Solomon, these two areas split. And it was very interesting. It took many years before there was a reunification that took place. It was through the time of Saul this split also happened. But it was through David's shepherd strategy, he begins to bring them back together. People appreciated this man. You know why? Because they felt encouraged by him. You know, I had a friend, I shared this story actually in Mentone Church, I pre preached a few weeks ago, and uh, it was really interesting. My friend went to this Christian conference. He went to this Christian conference, and as he was going to the airport, he went through the checkpoint, came down to a bus, and the bus drove him to another area where the plane was going to take off. And while he was on this bus, he was talking to some of the attendees, and it came out that the guy sitting next to him happened to be the brother-in-law of Billy Graham. Kind of a strange story. Billy Graham was actually preaching for that conference. So his family was there. His brother-in-law was there and began to share about what was taking place in his ministry. And my friend, as a young pastor, turned to him and he says, you have done many years of ministry. You're an older man. What would you say to young pastors? What would you say to young spiritual leaders? What advice do you have for them? And it almost as if he had said this a million times, he said, Son, I want you to listen to what I say. Don't ever forget it. He said what? Many people are trying to be empire builders. But don't be an empire builder. Be a kingdom seeker. It's really powerful because here David, as he begins to gather support, you would think this could be a providential moment for David to take the kingdom. And he had other seemingly providential moments when he went into the cave and Saul was relieving himself. There seemed to be a providential moment for David to slay King Saul and therefore take the throne. But there is one thing that David placed above providence, and you know what it was? It was principle. When it seemed circumstances were so easy and all he had to do was just compromise a little bit and he would get what he had always wanted. David decided that the wisdom of God, the ways of God, were more important than circumstances and convenience. People began to appreciate David. They felt encouraged by David. They saw hope in David's life. 
They saw what God was doing through him and the victories that were taking place. Now I want you to see the very last time this phrase, behaved, is used. Take your Bible, go to 1 Samuel. Chapter 18, verse 17. Notice what the Bible says right here. Then Saul said to David, here is my oldest daughter, Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So he begins to concoct this strategy that if David is killed by the Philistines, at least people won't think there was any kind of problem between him and King Saul. But notice what verse 18 says. For David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? You know what David's response was to this moment? Who am I? You know it's powerful? When you study out the story of David versus Goliath, it's an amazing story, right? And the reason why it's amazing is because when you actually read the conversation that happens between David and Goliath, it's not just Goliath that's taunting David. It's David that's taunting Goliath. He is the one who is also threatening him. It's one thing if David stepped out into the battlefield and was like, hey, let's fight now, and begins to take out a sling. But when he steps out into the battlefield, the Bible says he runs towards the giant, and as him and the giant begin to talk, the giant begins to threaten him, and David responds with very similar threats. The birds of the air will, air will eat your flesh. Can you imagine that intensity? He was not just there in a defensive posture. He was there in an offensive posture now. And when he was fighting this giant, he slays this giant, he races, picks up his own sword, and then chops the head off Goliath. You know, when I was studying out that story, I thought, this is an incredible story. That is so amazing. It is so powerful. I was like, how in the world would this young man ever think to himself that he could take on this 12-foot giant who was stronger than him, who was faster than him, who was a man of war, the Bible says, from his youth, a man who was more experienced than him, what in the world possessed David that he believed that somehow he could best this giant? When you read the book of Psalms, the Bible tells us, David speaking, he said, when I consider the heavens, the moon, the stars, he says these very interesting words. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? David saw the greatness of God in nature and saw the frailty of man. So when he stood against this giant, he didn't see this big giant. You know what he saw? A great God. Because he had made the Lord part of his meditation. He looked to the hills and saw the creator of the hills. He looked to nature and saw the God of nature who made the heavens steadfast. He saw the God who created the universe. And when he stood before this enemy of Israel, he was as nothing before him because he knew who his God was. David had an accurate understanding of God at this time and he had an accurate understanding of his own humanity. And that's why he tells Saul and his servants, who 
am I? And Saul begins to concoct this scheme, and he says to his servants, you tell David, if he gets me the hundred foreskins of Philistines, he gets to marry my other daughter. And you know what David does? He goes out there. He doesn't just come back with the hundred foreskins. You know how many foreskins he comes back with? Two hundred. He decides, I'm not just going to do the status quo. I'm going to go above and beyond what was asked of me. And when he comes back, the daughter of Saul is given to him. And I want you to notice what it says at the very end of this. Verse 28. Then Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was whenever they went out that David, what is that next verb? Behaved him more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Now, it's not just Saul that knows about David. It's not just Israel and Judah that loves David. The Bible then tells us what the next result is of David's behavior. Even the enemies of God know who this man is. You know, when you study out World War II, and the concentration camps, it's really interesting. There's a notable fact that's sometimes overlooked. And it's the ratio of guards to the prisoners. Okay, what do you mean by that? Sometimes if you see pictures or movies, you might see a Nazi soldier stationed at every guard post. But the reality was, because the, the, the Jewish prisoners were so underfed, they became so weak that sometimes the regiment of Nazi guards that were placed there were very minimal. In other words, it didn't require a lot of these guards to have to deal with these Jewish prisoners because they were so weak and emaciated. They had no strength. There was no power. The idea of them overpowering the guards was something unheard of because these Jewish prisoners were so weak and malnourished. It didn't require multiple guards. It would just require a few guards. You see, the devil is not threatened by malnourished Christians. He is threatened by those that feast upon the word of God every day. Can you say amen to that? He is threatened by those that have a genuine relationship with God. He sends a greater contingent of angels because he recognizes this person and their relationship with God is so powerful. The Bible tells us because of David's behavior that even the Philistines begin to know who this young man was. And friends, when the enemies of Israel know who you are, it's saying something about your life. We're learning something powerful about David. We're learning something so extraordinary about the kind of individual that he was during this time. We're seeing what made him legendary in these seemingly mundane moments. 
It wasn't greatness that made David legendary. It was goodness that made David legendary. Take your Bible. Let's go to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. If you're there, say amen. Psalm 101. Notice what the Bible says right here. A psalm of David. I will sing of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. When will you come to me? And I want you to notice what it says next. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Here we begin to see something about David's behavior. It wasn't just linked to his skill, his attention to detail. David's behavior was not just connected to his talents, his tenaciousness. It was not connected to his valor as a warrior. David's behavior was connected to his relationship to Jesus. It's very powerful when you read Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, it says this, O son, keep the law of God. Put it in your heart. And then you know what it says next? You will find favor with God and with man. Because the law of God was in the heart of David. Because the character of Christ was exemplified throughout his life. It was the goodness of God in his life which made him great. Which made him a legend in the land of Israel and even amongst the Philistines. It was because of his heart. You know, I began to realize something about the human heart in closing. And that is this. When you read stories about faithful men and women in Scripture, it's easy to look at your own heart and think to yourself, that's not me. It's easy to hear stories about John the Baptist, who was a fearless preacher, and then look at your own heart and think, man, that's not my heart, though. It's easy to, to look at various examples and see how far you are away from that example. I remember I went to a camp meeting and all they talked about was sanctification. And they were talking about the end time generation. I thought this is powerful, biblical stuff. I love it. But when I looked at my heart, I thought to myself, man, I am discouraged. You look at this week, and you might have come in crash landing into this Sabbath. Can I get an amen for that? You might look back at various mistakes that you had during this week, even today. And you might look at all the things that took place in your life. You thought 2019 was going to be a different year. And you've come to realize... Man, do I feel far from God. Friends, when you study out the beautiful counsels of God, 
you're going to realize something. There is a God in heaven who knows where you are at today. Amen? His grace meets you where you are at today, and that same grace wants to take you to a better place. It is the grace of God that meets us where we are at. And it is the grace of God that begins to change our lives. It is the grace of God that reaches in and begins to transform us. It is the grace of God that can write the law of justice and mercy upon your heart. It is the grace of God that can bring about transformation in your life. It is the grace of God that is present and available and accessible to all of us tonight. You thought at the end of this sermon, I would probably say to you, it's time to give your heart to Jesus, right? You thought, maybe here's the preacher, he's going to tell you, it's time to give your heart to God. It's time to give your heart to the Lord. Maybe you heard that last week. Maybe you heard that on the way here through a sermon. Maybe you said it to somebody else. Maybe you walked into one of the halls of the school and it says, give your heart to the Lord. But I want to share with you something tonight, and that is this, you can't give your heart to the Lord. In fact, look what Ellen White says right here. It is so powerful. She says this prayer, Lord, take my heart. Why? For I cannot give it. I used to think to myself, I'm like, I got to give my heart to the Lord. I got to give my heart to the Lord. I got to give my heart to the Lord. And then I was hit with this reality. I keep taking back my heart. And I only give to him the parts that I want to give. And other parts I want to keep back. But this powerful prayer, Lord, take my heart, is a prayer that is available to every one of us. Instead of you coming here and saying, I'm going to give my heart to the Lord. You've got to pray, Lord, I need you to take my heart today. I need you to do what I cannot do. I need you to take my heart tonight. And I love what it said next. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me up into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich currents of thy love can flow through my soul. We all love the sermon when the preacher says it's time to give your heart. And then when you come up to give your heart, five seconds later, you've taken it back. But this quotation gives us hope. It's not about us giving our heart to the Lord. It's about the Lord taking our hearts from us. And I want to challenge you tonight. If that's your prayer, Lord, I need you to take my heart. I need you to take what I cannot give. I need you to take what is a struggle to even give to you tonight, even at this moment. If that's your prayer, I want you to raise your hand. Lord, take my heart. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, The Bible says that you search for a man after your own heart and you found David. But Lord, how many of us look at our hearts today and realize we are not 
where we should be. And God, we are praying that special prayer tonight with all the burdens, the cares, the sins, the weaknesses, the brokenness. Lord, take our hearts, for we cannot give it. Thank you again for being with us tonight. Please continue to walk with us, to be with us. May we wake up tomorrow refreshed and in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org.